But watching this and thinking back to what I learned and what I've come to know what democracy is all about, uh, it was being shredded. It was being terrorized. It was being assaulted. For me, it, it was just against everything that I had come to learn about what the process was about and what it was meant to be. And there's accountability that goes back even years before what happened January 6th. That's tragic in itself, too. Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed. We'll be recapping last week's historical events in two episodes. First, reckoning with the insurrection, and in the next episode, examining Stacey Abrams and her efforts in Georgia that flipped the Senate blue, and how strengthening voters' rights takes on a whole new meaning as we witness real-time efforts to preserve our democracy and election process. Today, we're discussing the storming of the Capitol and what this means for media and journalism. President Trump's social media has been silenced. Twitter, the platform where the president boasted a following of more than 88 million, making the unprecedented move to ban him permanently, following similar bans by Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and Twitch. Trump doubling down in a statement accusing Twitter of banning free speech, adding, we will not be silenced. During this mini-season, my goal as a seventh-generation Georgian was to showcase the brazen and badass women who are the builders and dreamers integral to the Georgia that I know. In the wake of what happened last week, I turned to Atlanta icon, a fellow Rose, who is an award-winning journalist, a former All Things Considered producer, and the host of the midday news program Closer Look, heard on Atlanta's NPR station, 90.1 FM, WABE's Rose Scott. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation with former Republican George. With more than two decades of reporting, Rose Scott provides a daily pulse on all kinds of stories and news related to Georgia and the nation. I wanted to get Rose's perspective as a reporter, as a Georgian, and citizen paying witness to these historic events and shaping them. I just want to welcome you to the Women Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So let's start with the election. Uh, we Georgians saw a really historical win for Democrats, now in power of every branch of the government. And it was also a historical race for Georgia, seeing you know 4.4 million voters come out for a runoff, upsetting two Republican incumbents, sending our first African-American senator and our first Jewish senator to Washington, D.C. Can you tell me what it was like for you uh, last week, I mean, essentially, you are reporting from the nucleus of Atlanta's, you know, reporting place at WABE every day. You have a pulse on the nation. You have a pulse on Georgia. And what was it like for you just as Rose Scott, as a Georgian, watching the election results come in? I think for me, because I was actually hosting a, a national uh, elections analysis results for NPR that same night, but as I was Doing that and, and reflecting on what got Georgia to that point, never probably would have thought about Georgia being a battleground state in the past or a swing state, and definitely not Georgia uh, in a runoff being a deciding factor for control of the Senate. 
You know, I think if you had told uh, many folks that at the beginning of the year or even going back to 2018 to the midterms, folks would have been like, nah. But if you look at what has been happening even before 2018 and with Stacey Abrams' uh, bid to become governor, uh, even before then, the, the groundwork that had been laid by many organizations like Fair Fight and others and just getting people registered and fighting for voter rights. Um, so is it a surprise? It's not a surprise. It is a surprise that it happened now. That that could be. But I also think there's another factor, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, which is Donald Trump. Um, but Georgia, the demographics of this state have been changing for, for probably the last decade now. I moved here in 96, but you really can start tracing probably about 10 years ago as this state was becoming more ethnically diverse, you know, which is a term that we use. In your analysis, you have to wonder just how much of that will be more of either liberal or, or, or non-Republican um, folks in terms of supporting the parties and the ideologies behind that. Um, so maybe not a complete surprise, but a surprise at Georgia this early. But again, I think there's a Donald Trump factor in terms of the results of the runoff, too, as well. It's not to dismiss what some of those organizations have been doing in terms of voter registration and, and mobilizing folks. But I, there is a Donald Trump factor uh, as well in terms of the results. And can you recall when you got the news that the Capitol was being stormed and actually breached. Did you realize immediately that it was fueled by white nationalists? Or is that, I mean, I think that's a silly question from one Georgian to another, but I feel like I have to ask it. Well, I was in a grocery store, uh, I think buying cat food. And <laughs> I was with my producer and I came out and my producer said, take a look at this. And she held up her phone and we we, we saw the images of, of what was happening. And uh, I was just few blocks from my house. So I got home and turned on the television and just sat there kind of in, in, in dismay. Because as someone who has covered politics and someone who likes history, and I love reading about the history of politics, I believe I have a good grasp of what democracy, small d, is supposed to be about. I believe I have a good handle on what the democratic small d process should be like in this nation has not always been fair, has not always been kind and fair to certain groups, certain communities that look like me, certain communities where I come from, but still understanding the process of what democracy is all about. And to see this mob, the violent mob of now what we call insurrectionists, because that's the term that people want to use. I have another term, but... Um, What's your term? Well, I think they were. I think they were. They were. They were domestic terrorists. Honestly, I think when you use violence as a weapon to support your political ideology, and you use that, you use that, you use violence as that weapon, and as a weapon to, in a sense, terrorize other folks. To me, that that that's my personal opinion. As a journalist, I follow the rules of what our NPR news editorial folks would like us to use. I believe as long as I work for an NPR affiliate, I need to follow, unless it's something I'm just really adamant about. Um, this is something that I, I am willing to compromise on. Um, but watching this and 
thinking back to what I learned and what I've come to know what democracy is all about, uh, it was being shredded. It was being terrorized. It was being assaulted. And, you know, the, I had following, following that, uh, the days after, still continuing at the time of this conversation, having other conversations with folks about what happened on January 6th. Um, you know, what history will say about this day, I think, is still being written. But we do know that it was an assault on, on democracy. And I, I just, for me, it, it was just against everything that I had come to learn about what the process was about and what it was meant to be and what was meant to happen in the Capitol. Now, some will say, well, you know, perhaps this was, what's that term, chickens coming home to roost? I don't know if I always follow that. No one should lose their life because yeah. someone has a political ideal. And and that, for me, human, there, there's, a, there's a human loss here. Whether the woman was on that side or, or another side, um, there was human loss. And that is tragic in itself. And then it's tragic that accountability, while it rests with the mob, while it rests with those capital officers who maybe let some of them in, uh, who took selfies with them, but there's some other accountability higher up. And there's accountability that goes back even years before what happened January 6th. That's tragic in itself, too. Yeah. One of the things that I saw you do in the wake of, of this interaction, you discuss with some of your colleagues uh, on air on your show, Closer Look, with other journalists, exploring the question as much with yourself, you know, kind of being a participant, how has the media and how has journalism made themselves in a character in this story? How have journalists legitimized Trump? Well, I think going back to even when he was candidate Donald Trump and, you know, look, I'm a journalist and I understand about, uh, you know, the lead, the big story. You know, I understand about ratings we're in a digital space now, so I understand about getting the clicks. I get that. Um, Donald Trump is a very polarizing figure. The things that he said as a candidate, the way he talked about people, that was so new and different. Of course, the, the microphones and the cameras are going to be there. Um, we, when I say we, the, the news media, we didn't do that for every candidate that was running. We just didn't. But because we knew that Donald Trump was going to say or do something that was wacky or out there, yeah, the cameras were there. And when candidate Trump became President Trump, immediately in those first press conferences with the berating of journalists, uh, the berating of members of Congress, you know, I think collectively as legitimate news outlets, we should have come together and made a pledge about what kind of information we were going to disseminate about Donald Trump and that that news and information was going to be about Donald Trump for truth. Now, there were some outlets that desperately tried, but I do believe we could have come together. Mainstream, public media, what have you. We could have come together. News editors could have come together and said, look, you know, we need to be fair about this. When he says something that is not true, to tell people that. If he goes on a rant 
and is making derogatory, offensive, racist, sexist remarks, we're going to cut. We're not going to cover. We'll cover what we need to in terms of here's mm. some legislation or executive orders. When he berated black journalists, mm-hmm. when he berated women journalists, there should have been more of a collective outcry and a demand that it stop or we won't cover you at all. Fox News is going to cover him. That's fine because that's their platform. But now here we are even just a week out from the end of his presidency. And now he's off Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Instagram. This is what, 80-something million followers later? He's not going to be president anymore. We, we should have done better. And, and I, I had conversations with folks, with, with editors, with colleagues. Well, you can't really call the president a liar. I'm not saying call him a liar. What he says is not true. The sexist and racist words that the president used, because that's what he used. That's what we should have been saying. Now, I'm not saying none of this would have, wouldn't have happened. I don't know that. But he, what he did, what Donald Trump did, was a, because, he, because we allowed him to. Giving him all of this airtime and space to call us terrible people, an enemy of the people, and fake news. Because we allowed him to come into our home and preach that to his millions and millions of supporters, along with other baseless claims over these last four years. We allowed that. You know, we're watching big tech step in where regulation has not been proactive, where media is still figuring out what are the rules that they want to operate by and who is the, you know, legislative force. We're witnessing, and, you know, let's just say it, other powerful white guys like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey say enough is enough when established papers and outlets haven't been able to formally do so. What do you see as the next step for you, for us? Well, let me back up for a moment because I think it's important for people to understand. Unfortunately, a lot of people think Facebook, because Uncle Bob put something up there, is is their news source. You know, Twitter, because someone puts a link to a left-leaning or right-leaning independent news outlet, is credible. And not all of them are. I want to be fair about that. So when people—I've done— TED talks about this, and I've, I've, I've given talks about the responsibility as a journalist and responsibility if you are a consumer of news. I listen, to, I listen and read and subscribe to a lot of different credible news outlets, and I make my decision as an informed viewer, listener, but I'm also fact-checking. If you think that social media, and, and that's great that we call it social media because that's what it's supposed to be, but it has turned into this being lumped in with credible news sites and that's and, and credible news organizations, and that's the problem. I think that, that Twitter and Facebook should not have to be uh, lumped in with my industry, but it is because they, some people just put it all under media. But as far as news media, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned here. Um, look, let's be really clear if we're going to be honest, and, and I know you want me to be, uh, for folks that are upset and using, well, what about freedom of speech? These platforms, I guess now all of a sudden, 
have strict guidelines and rules in terms of online behavior. So when you open up an account, you agree to follow that. They kick you off. Well, you've violated. You have clearly you have violated their guidelines, their online guidelines, which Donald Trump has done for a long time. So I don't know why all of a sudden now they figure it's it's <laughs> he's done something wrong. He's been doing it for four years. Right. Well, maybe they figured if they don't have a country, they don't have a business. Well, that's that's not for me to conclude, but it is what it is. You know, yeah, you have the right to say whatever you want to say, but there are also consequences that come with that. And just with this show that I host, Closer Look, I invite you on as a guest and we have a conversation and you say something crazy and offensive or whatever, and I don't check you as a journalist, as a human being, because I know you are saying something that's either offensive or wrong or just inaccurate. I am, my job is to call you on that because if I don't then I'm doing a disservice to my listeners my viewers and to the those tenets of what it means to as we call it do good journalism have I made mistakes sure but I have a responsibility as long as I'm behind this mic and as long as I'm out in the community and reporting I don't care what your political affiliation is or your religion if you're a vegetarian, if you like dogs, if you like cats, if you're left-handed, right-handed, what have you. Everybody gets treated the same. You know, for my podcast, really, my my goal and what I think is kind of my job for this specific show is getting perspectives and people's stories. I don't know if I've necessarily thought of myself as a journalist. You know, I've kind of thought of myself as wanting to get someone's story, more more like a documentarian. Do you think that someone like me is kind of part of the problem? I mean, is if we're going to have clear guidelines, should we have clear roles as well? Do you consider yourself a news media outlet? No. I consider myself a podcast that profiles women and, you know, asks them about their personal and professional journeys from their point of view. Okay. Have you ever interviewed someone who you really knew you could prove that what they were saying was inaccurate or false? And if so, did you challenge them on that? You don't have to. That's up to you as just the host. But if you are a journalist, if you're considering yourself a working journalist, whether it's a podcast or whether it's working for NPR or whomever, then I think you have a responsibility or you, or at least to push them on that. But as a host of a podcast, that's, that's on you. You will deal with the, the consequences of if there's any backlash. I think there's only been a hand, less than a handful of times, maybe three times that I can remember distinctly where I didn't didn't push on something, and I, I still think about it, and I've been thinking about it a lot with you know our discussion of of media. wanting to ask from your perspective as a Georgian, you've been covering uh, Atlanta and Georgia for over a decade. And the minds of many Atlantans, our city is one that's led by black leadership. We've had a African-American mayor since the 1970s. And on the other hand, our legislature is controlled by the Republicans. And we're seeing this tension really play out. As soon as the Senate has flipped blue, we've seen Georgia Republicans figuring out how to curtail vote by mail. How do you see Atlanta and Georgia changing? 
I still think that remains to be seen. I think that I think there still should be at least another election cycle or two. If you if folks, if folks are just bent on saying if Georgia is blue or red, uh, again going back to I think there were some circumstances that aided to the runoff results with uh, Ossoff and, and Warnock winning. Um, I think if Stacey Abrams does run again for governor, that could be, and she wins, I think that could be a deciding factor. And, okay, now we can say George is, is blue. Um, Atlanta, the Democratic hold on Atlanta and, and the, the major counties around it, I think, is, is going to be solid for a while. Um, and it, it's, it's just shown to be that way. Um, I think as you get outside of maybe the the those five major big counties, and because Georgia's a Georgia's a real state, I think that remains to be seen. But I think that that also depends on what happens in D.C. You know, the plight of this state, just like any other state, there are some challenges and issues that all the states are grappling with, and there are some that are unique. You talk about the plight of rural hospitals, and you talk talk about the plight of farmers. And you, you talk about the the growing um, Hispanic and Latino community. So I think that that, that remains to be seen on, on in terms of where this, this state goes and um, in terms of leadership. You know, I think uh, Atlanta, although the Atlanta mayoral race is, is not a uh, partisan race, but it's, it's kind of clear, you know, in terms of the politics. You have been covering news for over a decade. You've been a sports broadcaster, and you also are an Edward Moreau recipient. When you think about your path in journalism, what would you say is, do you think that the single motivating factor to produce a show every day is the same motivating factor that you had when you first got into the game? Yes and no. I mean, I, I since the age of seven, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I grew up in St. Louis listening to Jack Buck on Cardinals broadcast with my father. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And, and But I've always enjoyed the news. I Sundays in my house, Sunday evening, football, and then 60 minutes. <laughs> you know, um, I grew up having Walter Conkright, you know, give the news and, and, and Roger Mudd. My, my house was a CBS News house. Uh, Roger Mudd and Dan Rather and, and so forth. But I also became aware very early that there weren't a lot of people that looked like me that were giving the news. I remember when Carol Simpson and ABC News on a national broadcast, that was big, big time. In St. Louis, there was an anchor by the name of Robin Smith, who I absolutely just wanted to be like. And I met her when I was in sixth grade. And told her I wanted to be a broadcaster. And she said, well, you can do it. Told my father at the age of seven I was going to be on the radio. Now I didn't know that much about NPR as I got older. And I learned about NPR. My father listened to NPR. Um, but I, I did recognize at an early age that all the stories I saw about people that looked like me and my community were rather kind of horrific and sad. There were some good profile stories, you know. But I, I was like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And so I, I did a lot of reading. And I grew up in a house where where encyclopedias were, you know, your best friend when you couldn't go outside to play. And my parents would say, well, go read his encyclopedia. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, you know, I've always been in, interested in history, in history of, of people like me who look like me, 
because it's quite frankly didn't really see a lot of it on television. So as I, I I did the sports thing, you know, I had my own sports talk show, and I felt like you know, okay, I've done that. Um, there's something missing. And as I was working with uh, NPR affiliates here in Atlanta, and really, really wanted to be involved in in content that you know reported on the lives of folks who we still weren't hearing from, you know, um, black people, uh, Hispanic folks. The LGBT community, you know, uh, marginalized communities. This is before that word became the go-to word. Um, and so I started working in, on public affairs shows and and producing, you know, shows with issues that address, you know, Black life in America. And then from there, it just it just kind of snowballed and came over to WABE in 2007 and said, "Look, if we're going to do news, because we were still kind of very." We were very much in the beginning of our news. I said, we're going to have to make sure we expand it beyond folks living in certain areas of this city. And I think that the I think this organization has done a, a really good job of expanding. Our newsroom is now probably at a size that I couldn't even imagine when I came in 2007 and, and what we're doing. So, yeah, that's kind of how my journey began and kind of where it is. I don't think it's going to end behind this mic, I don't think. We shall see. Was that a hard conversation with your family to tell them you're going from sports to news or did they see it coming? Nah. My my family's always been like, whatever you want to do and good for you. I mean, I, I've done some um, appearances on CNN. And they were just like, wow, <laughs> you know, when they hear me uh, yeah. doing a national broadcast, uh, you know, because a lot of my nieces and nephews, I think that um, at first didn't quite understand understand what does Aunt Rose do down there in Atlanta but now they know so nah. my family's always been encouraging and whatever you want to do you do it So I always try to end the interview with a light question going light after we go deep it's called truth or truth um, and I wanted to um, as a sports broadcaster as it's close to your heart Do you have a favorite sport, a favorite sports icon or an epic game that you that you think defines like, you know, your sports side of of Rose Scott? I would say um, that's a very good question. Very good question. I would say for me, um, and this is just kind of the more of an event than a particular sport, but when I watch the Olympics, because I, I ran track and, and, and I know and that's a grueling <laughs> sport. All sports. Were are you a sprinter? Or? Oh, no, I didn't have any speed. I was a triple jumper in college. Wow. And so when I watch the Olympics and the hard work that it takes to get to that level where you're competing with other folks around the world and then the pride that people have in representing their nation. And it seems like at this moment in time, it's kind of when the world is, is for, or, or, or World Cup soccer is when we're all focusing on, you know, we're representing something, representing our country, representing our state, representing our community, and then also, you know, all fighting for that gold medal. There's something about that Olympic spirit, the spirit when I watch these athletes and, and you follow them in the training and when they win and when they're standing on the podium, um, and that's when everyone gets along, right? You know, well, barring if there's any, you know, 
cheating going mm-hmm. on with steroids or whatever. Um, but I love the Olympics. I love when I watch all the sports. I watch I'll, I'll watch everything, even the Winter Olympics, uh, you know, the speed skating, ice skating. I watch all that. I love this, this the spirit of competition and, and seeing these athletes who've worked so hard to get to that level. You know, I, I love that. And, and and I love it when when that, that flag, you know, because I, I, I get what the flag represents, what it's supposed to represent. And that's why as a journalist, you know, when when people use that, use the whole meaning of what the flag stands for, but then they don't understand when someone says, well, perhaps this group of people feels a certain way because the meaning of that flag is not being does not represent them. So I get that. So there is pride when when the United States wins, you know, the gold in hockey, you know, going back to to the famous call. Um, Or, you know, um, when the four-by-four team, you know, wins or the the four-by-one team wins or, you know, basketball or gymnastics. I love all that, you know, because that's what it's all about, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm recalling such romantic moments and images from the 96 Olympics. The oh, yeah. feeling of I was here in Atlanta for that. Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, here for that. I saw Muhammad Ali. A... I saw Muhammad Ali light the cauldron. Me too. So, yeah, you know. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I would be remiss and I would get in so much trouble if I didn't say what a fan my mom is. And she can't <laughs> believe that I'm talking to you. What is your mom's name? Gail. Gail Reed. Well, Gail, uh, Happy New Year. Thank you for supporting not only what I do, but my fellow colleagues. <laughs> uh, I feel like I, you know, Babe Ruth. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again for your time. I'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks, Rose. Bye. Bye-bye. On our next episode of The Women, we'll do another recap of last week's election, this time listening to the wise words of activist and Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. Our opportunity is to hold our leaders accountable to their highest and best selves by saying, give us the ballot. And the worry is that, unfortunately, the courts and our leaders will not protect us from the worst instincts of politics. The Women as a Rose Reed production. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Thanks to our team, Nora Kipnis and Gail Reed. Artwork is by Harley Bosco. The song Yesterday's Papers is by The Rolling Stones. A huge thanks to Midge Sweet, Nan Orok, and the Green family, and Wendy Zuckerman. As hackneyed as may be, and as much as the founding fathers are talked about and maligned and used in all sorts of ways, this grand experiment of tearing down centuries of of, uh, rule by monarchs was quite something in America. We need to never forget that and uh, treasure the progress that's been made and, and continue to move forward in that quest. Every generation has to win it all again.